Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm honored to be joined by Todd Lavasser, author of Climate Change, Religion, and Our Bodily Future, published by Lexington Books. Todd is a visiting assistant professor in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the College of Charleston, teaching courses in religious studies and environmental and sustainability studies. All right. Todd Lavasser, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here. Um, So to start off, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, personal background, scholarly background, and how you became interested in the topic of this book? Yeah, so my background is I received an undergraduate in religious studies at the College of Charleston in the 1990s, and for my senior thesis, did a comparative perspective of the element of water across three traditions and wrote a a paper on that. So I was thinking about religion and, and and nature interactions back then as an undergrad, and that was in part inspired by my sophomore year of college. I did a year exchange through National Student Exchange and went to Humboldt State for a whole year and was my first time west of the Mississippi, let alone West Coast, let alone out in ancient redwood forests, which I fell in love with and out there was exposed to earth-first activism. This was during the 1995 uh, salvage rider bill had just been passed by Congress under Clinton which allowed for the uh, felling and removal of, of any uh, aged, dick or d- dead, sick, or trying dying trees. And by definition, that is almost any tree. And so uh, it had opened up more of federal lands to timber extraction. And, and so there was a big movement to save those trees. And that was right around the time uh, Julie Butterfly Hill, a couple of years later, went up into Luna, uh, one of the heroines of my generation. So I point of all that is became politicized uh, around environmental issues and already had a leaning towards thinking about power in society through uh, the, the, my upbringing, but also the, the music I listened to in high school really socialized me or conscientized me, uh, use a Frarian term, and listened to a lot of roots reggae and social justice lyrics of Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and Burning Spear. So um, came back and wrapped that up and got interested in the organic foods movement. This is when it was still uh, a nascent movement back in the late 90s. So worked on some organic farms and traveled and uh, just ended up doing that for a while and, and trying to do activism that way. Got into veganism and vegan activism and 
eventually I had the itch to get back into the academy and and study more. And my dream has always been to call it, be back then a college professor and sort of pay it forward. The the professors that impacted me and, and the way I engage the world and and uh, navigate structures of power and, and wanting to make the world a better place. I wanted to create a similar context of empowered learning for uh, other students as it had been done for me and pay that forward. So I matriculated into a master's program, Center for Human Ecology in Edinburgh, Scotland at the time to study with Alistair McIntosh, who I'd met at Schumacher College. He's a land campaigner and um, eco-theologian, queer theologian in, uh, sorry, Quaker theologian in Scotland. Thinking queer theory here as because I didn't get that in the book, but he doesn't bring that lens in himself. Um, and, and so got and started with him and uh, used that as a jumping point to get into the religion PhD program at the University of Florida. Specifically, their focus on religion and nature and there studied with Anna Peterson. She oversaw my dissertation, uh, Bron Taylor, and Whitney Sanford. Uh, Whitney since retired from the program there, and and my dissertation became a book from values to practice, uh, religious agrarianism, uh, from values to practice in sustainable agriculture. And I, I, I came up with this trope of religious agrarianism. So the ecological agrarian tradition married with religious concerns about sustainable agriculture and started adjuncting at College of Charleston, my alma mater in the religion studies department. Uh, some people were on sabbatical. And, and so that's been parlayed over the years into renewable annual contracts. So I'm a visiting assistant professor now. Gosh, I'm in my 12th year at the College of Charleston. And so teach environmental humanities stuff broadly, uh, focus on religion and nature, religion and animals, religion and ecology, sacred places, sustainability, I directed the Environmental Sustainability Studies program for a while, and most recently, administratively, been directing six years. Six year now, uh, um, wrapping up a project, part of our reaccreditation as a college, um, sustainability literacy as a bridge to addressing 21st century problems, and and so I'm wrapping that up. So, doing a lot of administrative work, embedding sustainability literacy, so triple bottom line thinking around social environmental economic systems across uh, the curricula working with faculty have helped train almost 100 faculty now on how to embed sustainability in, in their classes. And that project is we're in our final year of, so I've been directing that while teaching on the side. And so currently, for example, right now it's, it's October, 2021, I'm teaching a course, a first year experience course, the problems and perils of agriculture, and then an honors course, spiritual activism in the climate crisis, which is my uh, third time teaching that class. So more and more my teaching and, and this, back to your question, inspired the book that we'll be discussing is foregrounding climate change in responses to and in, in everything I do and, and you know, those standards I set forth for myself and, and write about in the book is if we're not doing that, we're, we're, we're sort of doing pointless academic work at this point, whether that's in our research teaching or, or uh, our writing. So I'm trying to walk my own standards myself in what I do. And, and yeah, that was probably a quick little three to five minute overview of, of my background. Great. Thank you. Um, and we will touch on some of uh, what you just brought up, um, your first book, your teaching, um, and obviously the argument for the book. Um, so the title of the book is Climate Change, uh, Religion, and Our Bodily Future. Um, 
the terms climate change and religion will be familiar to our listeners, um, but bodily future may be a new term. Um, so, you know, as as good uh, academics and intellectuals often do, uh, <laughs> could you define what that term means to you in the context of this book um, and why you thought it was uh, an important term to not only include in the book, but to include in the title, which obviously is a, is a signal that you think it's particularly important. For sure, right, and 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 of course, you know that ties into search domains and all that stuff. So, the the book is part of a larger series, and and uh, I just had the best experience working with my editor Richard Carp, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant mind and scholar and beautiful human, uh, even more so. And he has a, a a series through Rauman and Littlefield on bodies and religion, and I think it's up to maybe eight books now. Uh, when when I approached him and pitched this book and then got the contract for it was, I want to say around 2015 range. And, and there was only two books in it. I think Sam Gill had the first book on dancing and, and religion, right? Dancing because we do with our bodies. And so the series is on bodies and religion. And, and so literally, how are we embodied and therefore perform religion through our bodies? And, and that's one of the questions the series asked. And so I, I said to Richard, well, you know, the, the data I'm seeing around climate change suggests the future of our bodies, let alone the future of how we perform religion and embody religion in our bodies is going to be radically different by 2100, if not well before than anything we've, we've known to date. Can I write about that? And, and thankfully he said, yes. And like I said, the contract, that was about 2015. And, and then two, two major life events happened that really slowed the whole project down. One was uh, my son was born right then. And then I got this administrative job directing the QEP, which started right then too. And, and so everything you know was reprioritized in my life from having just teaching and time to write to admin, then teaching new child on the side of that. So being in a family and all those responsibilities. And so the writing really sort of fell to the back burner and I would tinker, tinker away at it off and on over the years. And, and in a way, I'm thankful how that worked out because it opened up Brady to a, a lot of sources that were just coming out. So a lot of the, the theoretical lenses I'm bringing into the book were just coming out um, at the tail end of my PhD. So I got my, I, I ended my quals in, in 2009, 2010 and started teaching 2010, received my PhD December 2011. And, and for those listeners who know how that works, you know, you're in that accelerated environment of just heavy, heavy intellectual lifting because that's your job as a, as a grad student. And then bang, you're out the other side and you don't have that, that like your job is not to just sit and read all day long, nonstop, right? And be exposed to new theories and, and contribute to them. You're, you're developing classes, you're doing service work, you're trying to publish, all the other things that happen, right? On the other side of that. And, and so a lot of these new theories and lenses were just starting to percolate out as I was wrapping up my PhD. And, and as I pitched this to Richard and, and started looking at, okay, how am I going to frame this? Because of course the, the, overview of the book that you suggest and the flow and the chapter titles changes once you get the contract and you actually have time to sit down and really do it. And, and so I, I noticed new stuff was coming out and I was really thankful to engage some of that, the new theoretical lenses of post-humanism 
uh, queer ecologies, material feminisms really informed the book in a way that wouldn't have if I'd written it in 2015 and 16 and been able to get it out in the first few years. And also, of course, the climate data has only sadly and tragically gotten worse over the six years it took me to write and index and get it published too. So, you know, all the studies I'm referencing in the book and, and even just the last six months. So as I, I hit the home stretch of writing was a year ago. Uh, through fall and winter of 2020 into January 2021. And then I submitted it. It went out for review. I was able to address the comments. Whoever the anonymous reviewer is, thank you, gave some great feedback. And then I indexed it and it was typeset this spring of this year. So even um, less than a year ago, I was pulling on climate data that was very scary and very alarming that I didn't, it was already that much worse than, than in 2015 and 16. So the bodily future, back to your question, is A, this is a series on bodies. So it had to fit into that series for, for the editor, right? And then the future of our bodies is going to be impacted very much by climate change, right? We'll overdetermine what our bodies do, how we perform religion in places through our bodies. And, and hence, that's the title. Thank you. Um yeah, I, I certainly recognize that a number of the sources were 2019, a number were even 2020. Um, so, so it makes makes sense that this. Uh, I, I don't want to say this is a pandemic book, but at least the the last part of your writing, it sounds like, um, was. I, I don't want to say benefited by a pandemic, but certainly you had more time, I suspect, to focus on this work. Which, uh, yeah, it shows because um, obviously you're drawing on lots of. Um, work from, you know, from Darwin on up um, and, you know, even, even scholars and just people um, from times past. But uh, yeah, a number of 2019, 2020, 2016 sources. So it's, it's probably a good thing this percolated for a while. Um, so to dive a little bit deeper into bodies. Um, so, you know, religions obviously have, have a particular relationship, um, not a singular relationship um, with bodies. But um, like what in particular have Western religions, which you don't exclusively focus on Western religions, but certainly, you know, the critique that Western religions have in many ways sort of severed sort of the body from other parts of humans. Um, so, so how have Western religions sort of thought of, regulated, I think you use the term policed human bodies, um, and, and how do humans use religion to shape their bodies, um, right? Because it's not, it's not a unidirectional relationship. For sure. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Without a doubt, there's no monolithic uh, in, in religion. And again, you know who who your listeners are to the podcast. If, if the religionist, uh, they're aware of all these discussions, right? So um, uh, as you framed it, you rightfully yourself, uh, want to be leery of to- totalizing statements um, within that. So yeah, you know, I, I don't focus per se on, on, on Western religions. Um, not, not really. This, this book is not a. This religion says this about climate change and bodies, right? Not at all. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, right? This is very much a book geared towards scholars of religion themselves, right? And how the academy actually views bodies in certain ways, analogous to religion, in that we're uh, sort of abstracted, out of place. And so, uh, Western religions, if you will, um, through default, have in a way deprivileged human relation with uh, a visceral embodiment in this world. Uh, I'm looking out my window right now, looking at trees and squirrels and blue sky, right? Like this, this is the ground of being right here. And so one of the things I do in this book is, is weave in an evolutionary perspective of bodies. And I, and I look uh, briefly at 
the cellular micro level, a look at the macro level of ecosystems and climates and how both of those levels impact our bodies. And, and then I look at the meso level of cultural creativity it gives us some parameters within which we can adapt to those other two levels and specifically the macro level and therefore adapt to or respond to climate change. And so Western religions broadly have been somewhat hostile um, to Darwin, to evolutionary insights. Of course, that has changed from the 60s, 70s, 80s onwards. Um, white evangelical subcultures still largely, again, broadly speaking, hostile to ev evolutionary insights, of course, right? Um, so yeah, the critique is that broadly speaking, Western religions have have privileged the the eschatology or or the ground of being or the point of all this as being somewhere else, uh, whether that's heaven or um, yeah, just somewhere not present to here, or this is seen as a fallen realm or realm of temptation or or whether you know things like that, and that's speaking more largely Christian. Some some affinities to Islam, which is still based out, you know, somewhat on a, a not an expert in Islam here, right? So I can speak at like the religious studies one on one level of it, uh, a day of judgment and, and a heaven. Judaism and diaspora is sort of all over the place, uh, depending if you're Orthodox, Reform, Conservative. Clearly, there are movements within all these religions though to take environmental issues seriously and climate change seriously, and that's what you know uh, I've studied at UF and the religion and nature program and you study too. So don't want to speak in monolithics. And and so, yeah, that's a, a overview. And one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm asking us to think about in the book is to say, hey, all that might be changing and rapidly in that I take a social constructionist approach to the phenomenon of religion. And, and so because religion is practiced and performed through our bodies by definition in places, as those places shift, well, then how we perform and practice and thus conceive of bodies will shift too. And, and historically, coming back, sorry, historically, at least for the last bit of time, the policing part has been religions have been, because I bring a social constructionist lens, right? What is the function in terms of regulating power and social dynamics and group settings? Police, female bodies and agency, heteronormative approaches to the body. That's why I'm, I'm really uh, thankful for and have so much to keep learning from a queering of religion approach, right? Um, queering of, of bodies in, in, in religious space and theories around that. And then re religions have looked at, you know, as they grapple with bodies, uh, okay, well, what happens to our bodies when they die, right? What's is there a soul or skandhas or whatever it is that motive and Atman, where do those go, right? Is a reincarnation, um, what are gender relations? What happens when you're married? What is healing and health and sickness? So, so religious studies has asked these questions about our bodies, right? They're dance, um, puja offerings, right? There's, so there's all these embodied things people do in religious contexts. What I, I use the lens of dramaturgy, right? Performative actions in a sort of dramatic script perspective of a religion. And, and what I haven't seen is religious insiders responding to climate change and how that's going to impact all those other things I just talked about. And that's happening faster and faster as climate change gets worse. But I've seen even less of scholars of religion asking, well, what is climate change going to do to all these other categories of the body that we have normed as acceptable to explore and theorize? Well, very few scholars have have said and, and normed and theorize, well, climate change and its impacts on our bodies. So that's another thing I set out to do in this book is say, well, 
this is going to overdetermine everything moving forward. It comes back to our bodily future part of the title. And, and so we better get aware of what climate change is and how it's going to impact ecosystems where we dwell and reside, because that's going to overdetermine religious production and practice for the rest of our species time on this planet. And we're asking questions as the Academy stuck in 1800s and early 1900s ways of thinking about things in many ways, um, not in the perspective of the 2020s with understandings of resilient science and sustainability science and climate science and how our bodies are, are fully enmeshed in sympoetic bonded creatures that are co-created by ecosystems within which we dwell. And therefore our religion is always impacted by the ecosystems within which we dwell. Thank I don't you. know if that answered uh, the second half of the question you asked me. Uh, well, I, I guess I, I, I think you did. I think you did. You, you know, obviously it's, it's complex. Um, you know, I had a related question about what it means to be an embodied animal. So maybe I'll ask that now um, because that might sort of make the connection um, that you make in the, in the book about, you know, if, if, some, you know, conceptions of the human have been disembodied. So what, what does it mean to both be embodied, but also be an animal, not simply, uh, you know, setting ourselves apart from uh, other animals? Well, sure. So human exceptionalism, right? Or speciesism. And, and so I, I weave some of that in. And it's even in the language we use, right? The human is a separate category. Well, we're evolved social primates. And, and, and therefore, everything implied by being involved social primates, uh, our bodies are products of evolution, our brains are emotions, all the chemicals coursing through our bodies, the microbiome in our guts, right? All, all of, none of this toddler bass are created. Uh, I'm an emergent property of, of that evolution. And then I'm a social primate, right? I, I primate have a big cranial capacity, opposable thumbs. I'm pretty hairy. I'm bipedal. I have certain needs of, of potable water and calorie intake. And I need, I need strong social bonds and emotional bonds and caregiving and, and giving back to that, right? And that's how our species evolved. And, and yet I, I reside in an academy that is totally in denial of all that. It, it seems that, um, you know, I show up on a space that's thoroughly designed by humans to cater to the human intellect and these square little rooms and, and, and around discourses of human exceptionalism and techno-optimism and, and human ingenuity and, and human superiority. And, and yet we're in the sixth largest extinction crisis. And, you know, uh, I, I use this framing in the book. We're not primary producers. Uh, I am, by definition, a derivative product of soil and water and minerals interacting through seed and plants and fruit and, and rainfall patterns and certain weather patterns. Um, Right. Turn on your oven to 130 degrees and stick your arm in there and see how long you can keep it in there. And it's not going to be long. Right. Well, that's what we're doing to our agricultural lands with climate change. Right. We're we're seeing major yields drop this year right now from from climate change. Right. Uh, that's going to impact our food supplies. So we, we can believe we're these in the academy, these these really um, abstracted out uh, brains that work on on these complex problems. Right. Um doesn't go far if we don't even have food and water to, to feed ourselves, right? Because the, we're embodied animals in places. So, right, what does that mean to take that seriously? It means we're not derivative products. We, we have biological, uh, ecological parameters that are more adaptive to the flourishing of our species survival. And we operate in a way that, for the most part, denies any of that, especially in the humanities, 
And, and so, of course, as you're familiar with the, the environmental humanities turn of which I'm part of in this book as part of is saying, no, like we need to bring all of this into the humanities. And, and those turns are, are in other fields as well. Um, ecological economics, um, you know, environmental anthropology, you name it. They're all having these recent terms. And so one of the lenses Brady I use in the book is a post-humanist lens. And, and that's a lens that says we need to go beyond or, or collapse the abstracted out cogito and, and, and the postmodern uh, fixation on word games, which I, I think was needed as a corrective of, of the modern meta narrative. But within that, we forgot that, well, nature is not a social construct too, right? Nature actually does exist, right? Parts per million of CO2 in our atmosphere are, are like a real thing. And we're up to like 413 parts per million right now and, and only going higher. Those will have material impacts. There's an agency there that will impact who we are as embodied animals. And the academy needs to be speaking to that reality or it's not speaking to reality at all. We're speaking to some abstracted fallacy of misplaced concreteness that has no meaning whatsoever on the actual real world our bodies are evolved and embedded within. And, you know, uh, that's where I'm arguing this book. Our, our scholarship needs to get to that grounding in being animals in places because that's where religion occurs. We're, we're animals with religion that performs those who are bodies in places. And, and those places are rapidly shifting, geologically speaking, from overloading our atmosphere with methane and CO2, right? And, and as animals, that's going to impact us. Right. There's a difference between a conception of nature and the natural world, right? One of these things we have conceived, we've theorized, the other thing exists and we exist within it. Yeah. <laughs> it is a real thing. We are embedded within it. And, and that's what the, the queer ecologies, the material feminisms, the post-humanism, um, uh, indigenous knowledges, ecological animisms, all, all those sorts of great theoretical lenses that I, I just loved reading uh, over the last few years to inform my thinking and theorizing of this book. That's, that's why I'm bringing all those together. And, and, and they're all saying similar stuff. We, we can't see ourselves as disembodied egos anymore. And in fact, we never have been. But the academy, to my experience working within the academy and seeing what gets published, including in our field of religious studies, still, for some reason, thinks to seem we're going to be immune from massive climate changes. And, and my, 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 my thesis is because we haven't taken seriously that we're animals and ecosystems, right? We still have this deeply embedded human exceptionalism or faith in techno-optimism that, that right, well, uh, this isn't going to really impact us. And, and that's not the case whatsoever. All right. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, the way that religion and religious practices, um, how you imagine they, they might be shaped or reshaped, I should say, uh, by climate and environmental changes. Um, and if there's anything from the case studies uh, in the book you want to draw from, um, you know, that's always helpful too. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's part. So the book's in two, two parts, uh, as, as you know, since you, since you've read it and, and this question hints at part of it. So the, the first part is, is sort of like the theoretical overview of some of the stuff we've already been discussing over the last 20, 25 minutes and situating the book and it's, and it's theoretical lenses within the literature that's out there and, and into the academy and into religious studies and, and theology. And so the second part of the book is, is sort of applied case studies. So here, here's what I think 
given what I've said in the first part, here, here's how I think we need to be thinking about how bodies perform religion in actual ecologies of place, right? Alive ecologies of place, because that's where bodies always are. And as those places are impacted by climate change and global warming, well, then how we perform religion will be impacted. So I look at a, a couple different places uh, as a sort of the fulcrum shift is looking at the Standing Rock protests, the No Dapple Pipeline protests from uh, Standing Rock Sioux in North and South Dakota, and this great film Awake that came out of that. And that was at the tail end of Obama. So that was like, uh, what, 2014, 15, 16. And, and how there was a lot of performed ceremony by bodies there, that sacred ecosystem to, to keep the oil under the ground and the, the pipeline from not being built. And so I talk about the material agency and affects of of the river there and, and the weather patterns there and, and all the protesters there to, to keep that uh, oil in the ground. And, and then from there, I look at case studies of how bodies are going to be impacted for two key rituals for, for religious practitioners from some of the world's largest religions. One is uh, looking at the practice of pilgrimage in, in Hinduism, specifically to the, the origin point of Ma Ganga, the Ganges rivers and Yamuna river, and specifically the glacier Gangotri glacier uh, up there, Gangotri at uh, the origin sacred town, sacred site of the start of, of the Ganges river. And all that's of course, snow fed. And so here's where I start looking at some of the, the climate, climate science of the region, Brady, right. Saying, uh, well, to understand our bodies in these places, we need to understand what, what science is telling us is going to happen to these ecosystems. And all the data suggests that the monsoon patterns are going to wrap switch. They're going to break up. There'll be earlier snow melt as it heats faster. And, and so there'll be less snow melt later in the season. There'll be changing snow patterns. Um, there'll be more melt and all these things that come with climate change high in the Himalayas to, to eventually the, the, the data suggests, and we, we need to be really clear. Of course, the further we predict out, we, sorry, the further scientists use their models and data points to predict out, there's more and more uncertainty, of course, right? We know this, but so we can speak is in trend lines. But if we assume CO2 and methane emissions will keep going up, which they are and they will, Right, even COVID didn't slow them down. So until we stop emitting methane and CO two, we're going to keep having more and more methane and CO two by definition in our atmosphere, and therefore more and more warming. So until we actually stop doing that, we will assume continued warming. So assuming continued warming based on IPCC projections, we're going to see more and more melts of of the glacier to the point where at some point, and who knows when. But if trends continue, and of course, clarify if trends continue, because we don't know what the trends will be, but only if they continue, we can look at a point where there will be almost maybe no Ganges River anymore. Who knows when, right? And, and that's obviously a lot of glacier that would have to melt and a lot less snow. Um, I don't think anybody's saying the Himalayas will not have snow. Nobody's saying that. The, the data doesn't suggest that. But the data does suggest there's going to be less and less and less and less of the snow melts that becomes the river. And it suggests that the origin point is going to shift further and further up in elevation and further and further and closer to the origin, to the, to the glacier, meaning that Ganga tree, right? The, the sacred origin town there uh, might have to be relocated as well. 
So what does this mean to go on pilgrimage? So this comes back to the performed body part of the edited series. What does it mean to perform with our bodies pilgrimage? And I and I chase out in this chapter as well all the different ways we use fossil fuels. We sorry Hindus people going there use fossil fuels to get there to do the pilgrimage. So it's all part of another lens I have in the book is petroculture and carbon democracy. Right, we're all based on petroculture. So our our bodily practices around religion are all scaffolded on on petroculture, fossil fuels. So doing all of this religion now and performing it is is largely become tethered to using fossil fuels that we know we can't keep using because it's only driving climate change. So we're in this sort of insidious cycle. And and so I'm asking us as a field to think about, well, what does it mean to, to do a basic pilgrimage when that pilgrimage site is going to be radically threatened by climate change and, and the actual physical item, i.e. water, that becomes a river is going to be radically impacted by climate change. And then from there, I go to Saudi Arabia and, and ask similar questions for the Hajj, one of the, the key pillars of practice for Islam, obligated to do at some point in your life if you're a Muslim. What does it mean to go to, and again, I look at the projected data for that part of the, that bioregion, right? Mecca is in uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula, look at rainfall patterns, which can be less and less rain. So even drier, look at predicted temperature rise. So we're looking at 130 to 150 Fahrenheit degrees in the summer at some point in this century. And so what does it mean to, to be on this extended day-long pilgrimage performing all the various pilgrimage aspects of the Hajj, right? The whole scripted dramaturgy of that, of that rite that we perform with our bodies and religion when it's 150 degrees outside in all the ways fossil fuels are used to enable, right? Flying people to do the pilgrimage, air conditioned tents now as part of that pilgrimage for those who can afford it. And so again, petroculture allows for that whole pilgrimage to occur. What does it mean if, if it's 150 degrees out, like that doesn't seem like a really good environment to be doing bodied performance of a religious ritual by millions of people. So does that mean the Hajj will switch to winter months? Does that mean it will just stop? Okay, well, if the Hajj stops, theologically, what does that mean for Islam? Right? Just like if the Ganges radically dries up, like what does that mean when when your key goddess is like no longer a, a viable river, you know? So so those are sorts of questions that that climate change to me says we need to be asking as scholars of these phenomena, right? And then I look at I was lucky enough to be able to go to Ladakh, India, uh, high elevation, um, high altitude desert, right? It's basically all snow fed, but there's not much rain there now, even though with climate change, there's starting to be more rain events. In fact, uh, devastating flooding a couple of years ago from from massive snow melt uh, brought that on. And, and then some rain events too, because uh, most of the land there doesn't have trees because it's just so cold and ice and, and windy. And, and so when you do now have rain, it washes away these traditional mud homes and the hillsides. And, and so you're having these devastating landscape changes. So I was lucky enough to teach some students there with my colleagues, F. Bjorken, who, who goes there a lot, so has some connections. And we brought some students there for a study away. And, and my class looked at climate change and we talked to people. So we looked at some sort of resilient responses like ice stupas, people using religious dramaturgy and, and bodily responses to trying to deal with, adapt to climate change, right? This to me is the new phenomenon of religion we need to be studying. And that's only going to become more pronounced in the decades to come as the ecology is a place where we dwell, keep shifting, 
And then from there, I move into uh, final case studies looking at Western post-humanist, post-materialist perspectives of religion. And post-material here means material in the sense of we have abundance, we have enough food and money, so our material needs are met. So not material in the sense of material feminisms, material. And so there I look at surfing as a subculture, sort of, you know, getting out in the water, communing with the natural world and a sort of post-humanist perspective, sort of dwelling in ocean spaces and that love of the ocean inspiring climate activism based on that felt affective visceral response to to being in the ocean and so i use some data points there and then i move into sex ecologies and and there i look at fuck for forest and using eco porn to sort of raise money to to protect old growth forests and then um annie stevens and beth sprinkle in this sort of sex ecology movement ecosexual movement that they started on west coast as sort of a post-humanist space of erotic love with the natural world and and sort of how that might inspire adaptive resilient behaviors and, and so where i wrap the book up is is sort of looking at to your question right how are people with religion responding to climate changes well, from an evolutionary point of view, they will be using religion to adaptively respond, adaptive in a survival fitness sense, because we're animals in ecologies of places, or maladaptive, our survival fitness will drop. And in a way, I see the academy as functioning, because the academy is as much a social construct as is religion. I see the academy right now responding in a way that's highly maladaptive. We are performing ways of being academic that are not speaking to the moment of massive climate change and global warming. And, and so in a way I'm arguing that, that our performance of this thing we call academic work is, is maladaptive currently because we're not taking our body seriously in these eco um, climate change places. And, and so, yeah, that's sort of the trajectory of the case studies I look at of, of what the scholarship, I would like to see my colleagues asking these types of questions, right? No longer silencing the natural world, realizing all religion always occurs in ecosystem places. And if we're not factoring in how those places are, are tipping and being impacted by climate change, by definition, we are not doing adequate scholarship anymore. Thank you. Uh, you yeah. anticipated one of my later questions, um, but I, I will press pause for the moment. Um, and I, I would suggest that you are an adaptive force within academia um, during your decade plus. Um, at the College of Charleston, you've developed and taught, I, I would argue, <laughs> as many classes as any scholar I have uh, experience with on environmental and climate issues. Um, despite the fact that you are not, you know, full-time faculty, you have developed a, a tremendous number of courses. Um, I, I assume you're developing not not simply teaching others' um, courses, just given the focal points. Um, so, so how have climate and environmental changes impacted, you know, your approach to teaching, your pedagogical approach, the courses you develop? Yeah, good question. So, I have a. You know, I, was, I work with uh, another brilliant scholar, great human, Forrest Klingerman. Uh, we would he had started a project on for AR book. Uh, you know, there be their their series on teaching religion, and and we didn't get enough. He invited me to come on as co-editor, and we didn't get enough submission. So we were lucky enough. James Miller at Duke Kunshan, uh, he runs Worldviews. Uh, that journal was 
we were lucky for him to publish what we did. I think seven essays it came to on on right teaching religion and nature, religion and environment, um, current best practices, and, and my my article for that is is sort of climate act. You know, what's the role of, of activism in our teaching? And, and so I speak deeper to this in that article. I don't even, you know, what issue that is. I'd have to pull that up and get back in touch with you on that. So I go deeper into this. So, yeah, a um, couple of things. That I'm, I've been lucky to develop strong friendships. In fact, I was just there a week ago for fall break. I bring students now up to Earth Haven Eco Village. It's an off-the-grid eco village on 300-plus acres in the remote down this valley in, in Appalachia between Asheville and Black Mountain and have developed some really good um, friendships with, with my colleagues up there who, who host our class and they do a great job with my students leading workshops and we share meals. And, and the goal to that is to expose my students to a, a, another way of, of being in community. Um, there are ways to, to flourish that don't rely on consumerism and, and, and runaway capitalism. Right, which are the messages that largely I, I think they they get. Right, in fact, that's one of the reasons you go to college, right? So you can get a job, and and I get it. Um, I get that we all have to publish or perish to navigate getting tenure, and and navigating job and labor demands in the academy, just as much as our students have to go get jobs. But we know all that runs on old sunlight through the form of fossil fuels. So by definition, none of that's sustainable. And I would argue it's not sustainable emotionally or culturally, right? Um, and so I invite my students through that. And, and more of my teaching is trying to create a space to their future is going to be very different than the future I was looking at when I was their age. And it's going to be dealing with a lot more climate anxiety, uh, solastalgia, what Glenn Albrecht calls, right? So remembering of different places that no longer exist. And that's another analytic lens I, I bring into the book um, of having to deal with climate triage, of, of dealing with broken political systems. Uh, gosh, look at the last four years under Trump, right? Just this resurgent white supremacy, right? All these things are, to me, are all one package in and of themselves and, and having to foreground a just transition. That's another um, thing I teach too. And so, and I, I don't know if I'm predicting your your question. You know, I end the book um, pulling on Ibram Kendi's "How to Be Anti-Racist" and the difference between public, um, public being a public scholar and public scholarship. And and so for me, if if my class doesn't have an SLO student learning objective in it around climate justice of some point, if if a lecture, you know, if I'm not bringing this into the class, uh, what service is that to their future? Right? How am I helping these students navigate what will be a very different future where they're going to need skills in community building, in conflict resolution, in restorative practices, in using um, liberal arts education to creatively solve problems, to be politically active, um, right? to model different ways of being, especially uh, men, Right, as, as a, a cis hetero male myself, um, to foregrounding BIPOC leadership, to all these all these things, right? Uh, to me, are part of a liberal arts environmental humanities education. So, and then I'm I'm, I'm passionate about this stuff myself. Uh, I like learning about this. I like teaching to it. I like having these dialogues. And so, yeah, very much climate change does inform the courses I teach, the administrative work I do at the College of Charleston. Um, the validity of the academy, right? I, I am an academic. I want, I want the academy to have value 
to making a better world that is more just and sustainable. That is a normative statement that I'm fine with making. And I did not see the academy playing that role at all. And so how am I complicit in both of those, how the academy is hurting the world, hurting our students in their future, to how is the academy helping create a better world? And, and so I want to put my efforts towards how the academy can help make a better world and, and live up to its promise. And, and that means I got to do that work myself. And so I try to. Indeed. Um, so obviously there's a lot of discussion about academia, uh, but there's also some discussion about sort of the policy venue on this book. And um, it's connected to some of what you just mentioned about public spo- public scholars and public scholarship. Um, so, so why do you see sort of the public policy realm as, as a productive space to address climate change? Because, I, again, we're in October 2021. Um, Senators Manchin and Cinema are holding up a number of climate elements to the, uh, the big Biden uh, Build Back Better plan. Um, so so you, you put more hope um, in the public policy realm than, than I typically do. But, but I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I put hope in there. Uh, my brother was actually a chief of staff for a U.S. senator a few years ago, so I, I, I talked to him a lot about right how hard it is to move anything through uh, through Capitol Hill. Um, yeah, so it's more. I was inspired by by Kendi's. It's like we have privilege, right? And so how are we going to use that? How are we going to use that to challenge powers of structure and space? So all of us are on, if we're, on, if we're lucky enough, I'm not, if, if those listening are lucky enough to be on tenure or have tenure, everybody serves on committees. Everybody has a faculty senate that they can lobby a climate emergency. Everybody can can hold the president accountable to to sign up to and live up to um, the commitments of the president climate action plan that college presidents can sign. Or, or I don't know how familiar with listeners are with with ACI, the American Association, the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education, and their Stars reporting. Most universities report on Stars reporting now. So we're all, in other words, Brady, we're all in an institution. So we can all lobby politically within the context of that institution to change our SLOs, to to foreground climate change as part of everything, right? Every field has something to say to this. And, and thinking you don't is is actually saying something to this, right? Um, all of us have a board of trustees we can interact with. All of us have uh, things that the institution's invested in. Um, all of us can educate students on local groups doing this work. I'm a state employee, so I actually can't take political positions by definition, right? But I can let my students know, hey, these are the groups out there doing this work, right? Be, be familiar with them. Um, you know, I don't know how much those, I'm in South Carolina, it's a very red state. I, I don't know how much those in, in state legislatures are going to listen to academics, especially given the, globe, the blowback on critical race theory in red states right now, you know, uh, it's just really disgusting what's going on. Um, yeah, I, I saw recently 50% of Republicans poll don't see higher education as being worth it anymore. Valuable. Like just, just, I, I can't understand how we have a party that literally thinks getting education is bad, but we do, uh, half of them based on that poll. Right. So, I don't have much faith that our political system is going to to shift. Um, I do think, though, that we are called to use our privilege and, and the knowledge we have access to to 
leverage systems we are within to do something about climate change, from teaching about it to embedding this with our, our campuses to hopefully asking our presidents, because our presidents, at least I'm, you know, I'm in a state school, so the state money's coming in, to work with other presidents to lobby politicians up in a state capital, like we need to do something about this, right? This fits our research profile. This fits our land grant profile, wh- whatever it is, right? The, the leverages there, the mechanisms and the systems that foreground and, and justify dealing stuff with climate change. Do I think that's going to go far? Probably not. Um, you know, I, I, what I see is, is the academy outside of Arizona State and some of the higher ranking uh, Sierra Green schools being very slow, if not absent at the table, despite right, the research being done in higher ed on climate change. I think most of the action I'm seeing in this space is actually coming out of the business world, right? Uh, investment portfolio is changing. Uh, recognizing supply chains are are totally muddled right now and only going to get worse. So you know, I, right now the business world and even they are way behind is making the strongest case for climate change because the ethical the ethical case for why we need to deal with climate change has fallen on deaf ears within the academy without. Right, I, I don't see people talking about the ethics of this and how ethically we can't do this to future generations. That that argument has gotten us nowhere because things have only gotten worse. So, you know, to your question, um, I do think as scholars, myself included, we have to teach this. We have to speak to it in whatever settings we can institutionally and change what we can through learning outcomes and where our funding goes, right? The curricula, the research we do, the letters we write, all of that stuff. Yes. Is that going to nudge politicians in red states, I don't think at all. In blue states, maybe it will. Yeah, well, uh, I think maybe maybe I should be a closer reader and take the public because I, I think you do emphasize policy, not so much public policy. And and as you're suggesting, maybe it's policy in lots of different institutions, lots of venues, not necessarily the federal, state, or local government venue, um, but whatever institutions you are connected to. Um, yeah, so I yeah, think I think that's more. Th- that's right. I, I think the the policy realm of, uh, of uh, legislature and, and writing laws would be secondary. I, I think the policy there that I'm, I'm talking about in the book is, is more within the, our sphere of influence as employees of an institution, right? With with bureaucracies that are shaped by internal policies, and and so that's where I I we need to be acting. All right. Again, a normative activist statement, because the flip of that is if we're not acting on this, that that to me is still an activist statement. And, and the statement is, is that none of this matters. Right. It's same with, well, if you're if you're not talking about race issues or BIPOC issues or intersectional justice issues right now, that that is a statement that you're OK with with how bad those issues are. Right. And, and so same with climate change. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I would love every department of religion to have an SLO around climate change and, and to hire somebody that can teach religion and nature stuff. Like to me, those would be two non, non-starters that, that should be done immediately across the academy. I would love that. If I had a magic wand, right? That, that's how I'd make our field relevant to what our planet will look like in 2040 and 2050, not operating like uh, we're still in the 1980s and 1990s. 
All right. Well, you've you've anticipated what I think will be my last question uh, because you've been generous with your time already. Um, but uh, this book is a critique of religious studies and academia, as you have sort of hammered uh, at throughout the interview. Um, you question reductionism, disciplines, the idea of neutral scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you've sort of started to answer this question, um, but I'll, I'll sort of pair two questions then. So, so what do you hope um, your colleagues take away from your book? You know, not necessarily at the College of Charleston, but more broadly um, in academia. And um, I, I know at different points you do highlight some scholars you think uh, are doing this this kind of work. Um, so if there are particular scholars um, you think are producing the kind of sort of public scholarship um, that you would hope for in the future if you want to highlight some of that work. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, the first one one more time. I was thinking uh, just, of the second. You know, what, what do you hope your colleagues once once they okay, take yeah, in? Okay, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so right? yeah. yeah, gosh, after reading this, I, I would hope a couple things. I would I would hope that they change their theories and method approach, right? Because a lot of the lenses I'm bringing in are, are vibrant and cutting edge, and and I would argue need to be brought in. Um, the posthumanism, the material feminism, the queer ecologies, all that stuff. I would hope they would read this book and realize they are an animal in in a on a home planet. <laughs> And, and and that's real, right? The, these identities we have as scholars is, is is just precisely that. It's a performed identity that that doesn't. In the history of our species, uh, right? We needed stable weather and 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 healthy relationships with the natural world and ourselves within that. We we didn't need um, religious studies, right? Or philosophy, or sociology, or uh, geology, right? Whatever the discipline is, what we didn't need. Uh, what we need is, is a healthy planet to live on uh, and ways to live sustainably on that. And so I would hope reading this, uh, any colleague realizes that they're an animal uh, on a home planet that's that's a beautiful home planet that's getting decimated and destroyed in part by what the academy teaches and how we do our scholarship. Um, and so I would hope they're invited to invite their students back to their bodies and places and how to care for those places that they reside in and that they have those discussions in, in the classes they teach. So that, that's what I would hope, right? That, that's our sphere of influence. Um, I, would, I would hope, like I said, that every department across the country hires uh, what you and I are trained to do, which is still seen as highly peripheral, if of value at all. Um, so I, I, would, I would hope colleagues realize they need to teach the climate change because that will over-determine anything else about which they're teaching. Uh, if nothing else, because the places where we're teaching are campuses that are going to be responding to climate change. So my campus is going to be dealing with more and more flooding and hurricanes, right? Hard, hard to teach when your campus is underwater. And so that they therefore get involved with campus operations and moves to sustainability and get their students inspired too. Um, scholars in this place, you know, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by Catherine Hayhoe. She, she's a, a natural scientist that is an evangelical. And, and so she's sort of found herself talking to a lot of evangelicals about the science of climate change. So she's very much doing public scholarship. Uh, Michael Mann, uh, up, is, is he at Penn State? Oh gosh, I don't have him, his site up. He just has a new book. Last He's a, I checked, he was at Penn yeah. State. 
Okay. Yep. His new book on climate change uh, is really good. So he's trying to inform some policy with that. You know, within our field, I, I, I reference a lot of people. Gosh, so many. Uh, you know, I, once I start naming names, I want to keep going because they're all amazing people. Uh, Willis Jenkins, Lisa Sedaris, Whitney Bauman, of course, Bron and Anna down there at Florida. Um, Robin Globus Velman. You know, I use I use her in in the book. Uh, just, just so many people in the religion and nature, religion and ecology subfield, right? Um, that that I pull on on their work. David Haberman, in fact, he has a new book out, edited book on on climate change and religion. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think. I, I think, Brady, as we wrap up, that it's so hard because the, the pressures are there. Yeah, I don't have tenure. I'm, I'm not on a tenure job, despite everything I've accomplished. So, so the Academy is, is not a meritocracy, right? It's not visionary. Um, people don't make good decisions that are for the good of, of, of people's profession, professional lives and the good of, of the world, sadly, is what I've learned. Um, it, it's, it's hard to navigate these systems. And... I, I think within that is is we're trained or the expectation is is we're going to have this groundbreaking idea, right? We're we're gonna we're gonna change everything, and and that, that's an insidious expectation given to us, or, or that we're uh, we're socializing to, to hoping for. I, I think the best, you know, the best experiences I've had in the academy are sitting in a place of transformation with, with students where we've created a co-created a safe space to, to have these same discussions we've been lucky to have over the last hour together. And and they come out of that empowered and cared, right. And, and, and sober understanding of, of their future. I mean, the most recent IPCC report is, is another damning run, right. They, they just keep getting worse. So right. Okay. Well, well then what, and then having those same discussions with my colleagues, right? So, so I, I, I think, right, the scholars that inspire me are those committed to their community. Because at the end of the day, that's where resilience has to occur, right? Those colleagues bringing care and compassion to institutional bureaucratic spaces that kill that compassion and care, right? Because it doesn't count towards tenure or it's not promoted or you don't even get a job, and nonetheless, still doing this work because it's what we're called to do to to make our difference in reforming education because everything has to be reformed. So those of us who are called to be educators, bringing that vulnerability and that care into these spaces, those are the scholars that at the end of the day really inspire me. All right. Thank you, Todd. <laughs>